Resurrection Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. Um, today, we're really excited to be joined by Gerard Toes, who's an assistant professor at the New Economics School. Gerard got his PhD in the economics department at the University of Oxford before coming to the New Economics School. Jared, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be with you. So I just wanted to ask, this is not the new school, but the New Economics School. Where is the New Economics School? Uh, the New Economic School is based um, just outside um, Moscow, so the capital of Russia, and um, it's based in a new area which is being developed to become kind of an area where people who want to kind of get a tertiary education or a college education, which is roughly in line with Western standards, this is where they would go. So this is the Skoltech area, and this is also where the New Economic School is based. We're focusing on economics in particular. Jared, I have a silly question to ask, but... Here in the United States, there is sometimes the impression that Russia is a kind of dictatorship and there is not freedom of the press and maybe not even, you know, freedom of expression. So I'm wondering, you know, to what extent is that true and to what extent, you know, can you basically talk about and study what you want as an economist? Yeah. Okay. so I I, I need to be careful with regards to how much I'm advertising what I'm doing. So if I'm going to study, let's say, corruption of the elites in the country, this is a research question which I maybe wouldn't advertise very much in Russian. Mm-hmm. But, but two things are kind of making it less of an issue. First of all, um, on the level we're studying this with theoretical mathematical models or with uh, statistical methods, on a level which the average person within Russia wouldn't typically be able to understand what we're writing, what we're talking about, such Mm -hmm. that as long as we're not advertising this too much, this is not really a threat to the regime, and as a consequence, not really an issue. Moreover, if if we're talking about things which happened in the past, like the thing we're going to talk right now, this is even less of an issue because there is nobody nowadays alive who could feel offended by what has happened back then. And as a consequence, this is not an issue. So for instance, the topic we're um, going to discuss today has been summarized and published in Novaya Gazeta, which is a Russian outlet. And this is the one which actually received the Nobel Peace Prize this year. So the director of the Novaya Gazeta received the Nobel Peace Prize this year. And so that that was not an issue at all. So we've published this in January or February, I think. No problem. All right. Thank you. So let's get right into it. Then. It's a good segue. We're going to be talking about enemies of the people and the millions of intellectuals who are artists, engineers, managers, professors who were seen as a threat to the Soviet regime and, and sent to gulags. So first, let's talk about, you know, what time period are we talking about? Who's sending these people to gulags and where are they being sent? Stalin kind of managed to... Um, grab all the power by kind of the late 20s and was in complete control of the Soviet Union. And from then onwards, he had the idea to industrialize the country as quickly as possible. Um, Industrializing country as quickly as possible is difficult to do. I mean, industrializing in general is already difficult, but to to do it quickly is really difficult. And uh, one of the ways which was particularly helpful to achieve this was the Gulag system. The Gulag system um, is 
I guess, in a way comparable to the concentration camps in Germany during the Second World War, but they had a slightly different purpose and they were managed in a different way. Um, they had, in particular, the purpose to create or generate large and cheap labor force. So uh, the regime would arrest, in particular, criminals and political enemies, and then send them wherever a, lab a cheap labor force was needed in order to industrialize the country. So the Gulag system started developing in the late 20s, roughly 1928, and then it peaked uh, in the late 30s. Then during the Second World War, many of the prisoners were used at the front to fight the Germans. And then it peaked again in 1952, just before Stalin's death, and then it came to an end. Okay, and these gulags are all over the Soviet Union. They're mostly, I mean, I picture Siberia. Is that is that right? Yes, that's right. So Siberia is a kind of a strange concept. I think most people, if they think of Siberia, they don't have a specific area in mind. Mm -hmm. And that makes perfectly sense because it, it it's it's used in it, it, in different contexts it may mean different things in the in the biggest kind of in the kind of the most general meaning of the term it means everything behind the so the, behind the Ural Mountains or to put it differently the Asian part of Russia this is Siberia and since this is the part which Stalin also wanted to develop so to build railways to build roads to develop cities. This is also the part of Russia where many of the prisoners were sent. Overall, you can think about it in the following way. Um, by 1952, there were roughly 100 camps, gulag camps, uh, all spread all over the Soviet Union in Kazakhstan and Russia and Siberia. Um, and on average, they had a size of roughly 5,000 to 10,000 people. Well, so let's get to your, your research question. You asked the question, what are the long-term effects in terms of development on, on Russia as a, as a result of these gulag systems? Are you interested, and there's a couple of questions here, are you interested in the sites where the gulags were located? Are you interested in what happens to, say, Moscow and St. Petersburg um, or Leningrad when the intellectuals and artists are, are removed from these cities? And the big question is, why this question? Like, how did you become interested in this? Okay, so let me let me let me kind of give you the general picture first. So, I guess the easiest way to think about it is that if you decide to arrest the enemies of the people, and if you define the enemies of the people to be the educated elite, like teachers, professors, engineers, lawyers, journalists, then what you're essentially doing, you're taking those people from the big cities in Russia, like Moscow, St. Petersburg, Novosibirsk, and you move them to the middle of nowhere to be part of this cheap labor force necessary for industrialization. So what the overall effect on Russia is, we cannot really say. What we will be able to say is what's the consequence for the locations around those camps where those educated elites ended up. So you're sending journalists and engineers and professors to the very Northeast of Siberia. And if you're forcing them to stay, um, they may have an impact on the economic development of those locations. And this is the question we're asking. Um, now, why am I interested in this? Well, mm -hmm. I am, my grandparents 
were part of those enemies of the people who were actually sent to one of the big camps in Kazakhstan, which is nowadays Karaganda. So Karaganda, if you look at the map of Kazakhstan, you will find a city which has the name Karaganda, and that didn't exist until 1930s. It was a tiny village. And then a camp was created there, and many people were moved there, including my grandparents. And so they stayed there. My parents were born there. I was born there. And... Um, when I was a kid, um, my mom would always tell me that um, her math teacher would be a professor from a Moscow university, and hence he would be particularly good in teaching math. And I guess this is the motivation. So as mm -hmm. a kid growing up, I've been told these stories, and um, eventually I thought about testing them. All right. That's so interesting. So tell me, what, what did you find? What was the legacy of the Gulag system? Okay, so so the easiest way to think about it, um, think about the U.S. at night, looking at it from space. What you will typically see, and by now there are many pictures of this type around, that those areas which are particularly productive, which are particularly flourishing, they will be particularly bright. So you will easily find New York, you will easily find L.A., on the map. So lights can at night can, can be used as a kind of rough indicator for economic development, for productivity, for wages. So the first thing we did, we basically spatially, we mapped the location of the camps to these night lights for Russia. And then we just looked whether the locations, we compared the locations of the camps and we looked at whether the locations which received more enemies of the people are nowadays brighter from space. And what we found is that indeed that's the case. So the more enemies of the people ended up being moved to a specific camp, the brighter it is nowadays. So looking at night um, on Russia from space, you will already be able to identify which location received more or less enemies of the people. Well, that's, that's really interesting. And I want to come back to your family story. Why did your, and I think this connects, I think this connects to your paper. Why did your parents decide to stay? Why did your grandparents decide to stay? Why do so many of these enemies of the people remain in the site of the gulag, even once the gulags are closed? Yeah, so basically there are three reasons for this. So one reason was um, Stalin's goal was to make sure that those enemies of the people would never return to Moscow or St. Petersburg and would become again a threat to the regime. So there were political constraints on movements. So my grandparents were simply not allowed to return to the European part of the Soviet Union. And this stayed like that for quite a long time. And this was true for many of the enemies of the people. They were simply not allowed to move back to the big cities. The second reason was that by the time the Gulag system came to an end in 1952, the, those people have spent already sometimes two decades, like 20 years, um, working in those camps. And they were familiar with the production process. They worked in factories. They, 
And when the gulag came to an end, there were so many people and the production process was sufficiently well-developed such that they also had a job there. Whereas if they would leave, it wasn't clear whether they would find an equally good job somewhere else. So this is an economic motivation. So the first one is political. The second one is economic. And the third one is psychological. And um, Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the first book, so the Gulag Archipelago, for which he also received the Nobel Prize in Literature, discussed this and also says that by the time the Gulags were closed, most people you knew from the time before you were moved to the Gulag, they, they, they left or they died or you couldn't find them anymore. Whereas in those last 20 years, you were able to develop social networks, you had friends, you had family, so you also didn't want to leave. So basically, A, the system didn't want you to go back. B, it was economically more reasonable to stay because you had a job. And C, psychologically, you preferred to stay because this is the place you get used to. So besides the lights, which is something that you can, I, mean, it's in, I think it's ingenious that you chose to, to measure this, and it's obviously quantifiable. Um, I imagine you see much higher rates of GDP in these areas as well. Is that right? Absolutely. So, so we also do the whole analysis with wages and profits, which essentially and adds up to local um, production. The reason we also do it with lights is mainly because some people may question the quality of the Russian data. And they may say, well, we're not mm. quite sure about the quality. And what we're basically showing is that the results with the lights data, which they cannot fake, because this is something we collect from space. So the NASA is collecting this information is perfectly coinciding with the results on local GDP. Well, but you know, but NASA fakes the moon landing and stuff. So you know, I don't know. <laughs> yes. Well, but, 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 so basically it's an additional source right. of data. If you don't trust one, you may trust the other. If you right. believe in NASA faking the moon landing, maybe you trust the Russian data. <laughs> right, right. So those are things you can quantify. I'm wondering, just, you, you know, you, you grew up in one of these places. Yes. Qualitative, can you feel that maybe there's more of a, say, flourishing art scene? Um, or there's an, uh, there's an intellectual class still that remains in these places? Yeah. So unfortunately, simply because I moved to Russia three and a half years ago, and I didn't have the time to visit all those places because we have like 100. And it's difficult for me to personally compare. But we have a very nice example, which we also discuss in the paper. There is a famous Russian comedian who uh, in the last 10, 15 years has been traveling all over Russia and visiting all the cities. And when he was interviewed two or three years ago, he has been asked what's his favorite city. And he said that one of his favorite cities is actually Magadan. And mm. he describes it as a kind of a city where he had a very well-mannered audience that laughs at very subtle jokes, which he wouldn't get everywhere. And uh, so this is kind of already giving you the idea that the intellectuals who have been moved to Magadan, which is in the very northeast of Russia, stayed there, their kids stayed there, and they're now still there. And because of intergenerational transfer of education, you still have a higher share of highly educated people in those locations. And he picked it up during one of his comedy shows. Wow. 
That's so interesting. You know, in your paper, you talk about um, other examples. So intellectuals in China who are moved to the countryside or highly skilled immigrants moving from Europe to Brazil and Argentina. And I'm wondering if if these examples are, are being explored right now in, in the same way that you, I mean, are you working with other economists or know of other economists who are doing similar work to you or as you are, but in these places? In, 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 in these places, you mean in Russia or are they asking similar question in other countries? No, yeah, I mean like our Chinese scholars um, looking at the impact of the intellectuals who moved or who were moved to the countryside or are they are you in China in China or yes. scholars in Argentina who are looking at the the impact Absolutely. Okay. Yes. So so I think I think th- there was a wave and I think it's peaking right now that's my impression where economists started exploring the long-term consequences of economic shocks, which happened a long time ago. So I think this started roughly 10 years ago. And since then, a couple of papers have been produced focusing on the long-term effect of such shocks as this reallocation of elites, either in Russia, in China, or Argentina. And um, they are broadly consistent. So the magnitudes are different because the um, the shocks are different and the people are different and the situation is different. Um, but overall, they're roughly consisting, suggesting that this is not a Russian phenomenon. Um, this is something which we have experienced as a kind of as a hum- as humanity, we have experienced in many countries and different places. I'm wondering if we're gonna if we're gonna see this as a result of something like this as a result of the Arab Spring. Like I wonder what happens to the intellectual class in, say, Syria, for example. And, and where they move and whether that has an impact both on Syria, but also where they, where they relocate. Okay, so now th- th- there are at least two questions with the way I hear what you just said. So first of all, you're basically asking, what, what is the impact on, on the location which experiences actually the outflow of those elites, right? Yeah. So that's one of the questions. And there is another paper, and this might be interesting for you as well, which looks at the Jewish programs in Ukraine in the late 19th century. And they're exploring whether the location which received larger outflows of um of of, of, of Jews as a result of the program are worse off nowadays. And they find, yes, indeed, they are worse off. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a paper already out there. I think it has been published roughly like seven, eight years ago. My guess, I'm not aware of any papers on Syria or Afghanistan in particular, but I wouldn't be surprised, of course, to see that indeed the outflow of educated elites will have an impact on the location which the elites are leaving. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of... In terms of the impact, and this is the second part of your question, what's the impact on those locations where the migrants are moving? Again, I will not be able to give you the exact papers, but there are quite a few papers which are discussing the impact of educated migrants on local communities and how those communities are actually greatly benefiting from the influx of educated elites from other countries. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think if people were reading these papers, your work, leaders, that is, they would have quite a different view on on the question of immigration. Jared, the last question is, you know, I have been for the last few months asking all of the guests the, the same 
question. I, I, I need it to fortify myself. Um, and I imagine some listeners do too. I want to end on a positive note. What is the thing in the world right now that is making you feel most optimistic? Most optimistic about the future. Yeah. It, it, it shouldn't be related in particular to uh, Russia or the force. It really is up to you. Okay. So I think, I think the most optimistic, and I, I see this in my students here, and we see this in the press, and we see this in the, even in the political movements, we start seeing this. The younger generations are extremely vocal about the environment. And so my main focus is actually not migration, but natural resources and the environment. And I really very much like seeing the, how, how engaged the younger generation is with regards to protecting um, the environment, in particular with a focus on climate change. I think this is great. This is obviously necessary. This is their future. And so I like this very much. More generally, and let me yeah, advertise this a bit, a colleague of ours, Max Roser, has a webpage um, which is called Our World in Data. And he tries to collect information on many, many different topics and document all the positive developments which the world has experienced in the last two centuries in terms of decrease in conflicts, in terms of uh, decrease in um, um, child death, in terms of people caring about the environment. So there are many, many, many things to be positive about. So I'm actually, I think, reasonably optimistic. Yes. 